linguistic archives. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today we get to listen in on a conversation between Shona Holm, who you already know if you've been with us here for a while, and Diana Slattery. In a moment, you're going to learn more about Diana, but if you've been with us since the very early days of the salon, then you should uh, probably recognize her name. I can't remember exactly when it was, but after I'd done a couple of dozen podcasts, uh, oh, maybe even 50, I don't really remember when it was, but I had almost run out of new material to play. Then one day, a man delivered a big box to me, and in that box were dozens and dozens of audio tapes of Terrence McKenna Talks. As you'll hear in a few moments, when Diana was working on her Ph.D., she conducted what must still be the most in-depth study of how Terrence used language. And having finished her work with those tapes, well, she sent them all to me to play here in the salon. And while I've said it here before, and I also got to tell her in person when we were at Esalen together a couple years ago, without those tapes, the salon would have died on the vine. The fact that I'm still doing these podcasts has a great deal to do with Diana's early support and encouragement. And so I am more than pleased that we now have an opportunity here in the salon to get to know her a little better. So let's join Shona and Diana now. This is Shauna Holm, and I am about to have a conversation with uh, a very amazing woman who I have great admiration for, Diana Reed Slattery. And uh, first of all, Diana, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're very glad to have you, and I know Lorenzo is very excited. And, and so first, what I'm going to do is just I'm going to read the bio that you sent me, and then we will uh, proceed. But there's quite a lot for you to speak to, my goodness. So I, I met Diana. I'll just say real quick that she is on the board of the Women's Visionary Congress, and, and I have been, uh, I've been there twice now, two years in a row, as a speaker. And, and she is just so warm, such a, an amazing woman, and, and quite the background. So, so check this out. I'm just going to read this. Diana Reed Slattery was born in time to compile a full 60s resume, civil rights photojournalism, peace marching, communes. Social justice, self-exploration, and LSD went hand in hand. She went on to co-found an ecologically oriented K-12 school with working farm, dairy, livestock, and forestry that held the first renewable energy conference in Oregon. She later <laughs> continued her career by founding, funding, and managing a series of not-for-profit organizations. In 1999, in an altered state of consciousness, she acquired a strange alien script, Glide, beginning a 10-year psychonautic investigation of linguistic phenomena in the psychedelic sphere. Out of this solo and secret adventure came a novel, The Maze Game, a million words of session reports, software to work with the language, and a PhD in xenolinguistics. Slattery lives in California and has presented her work at numerous art, technology, consciousness, and psychedelic conferences over the past 15 years. And then I will say also she has a second book coming out in 2015, uh, I believe co-written with Alison Gray called Xenolinguistics. No. 
Oh, not co-written. She wrote the foreword. Oh, thank you. Oh, you know what? On Amazon, it says both your names. I know, but that's because she's in the foreword. Of course. Okay, thank you for the correction. She wrote a fabulous foreword, by the way. I mean, it's it's a whole thing because we both have Jewish backgrounds, and there's a particular Jewish relationship to language that just seeps into you without your even knowing about it. You know, and it has to do with the with 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 the book of the word it's it's just it's the jewish attitude toward the word anyhow she and i connected on that and she writes about that in her foreword which is really beautiful oh wonderful oh my yeah. goodness this is really yeah. great well so the title is xenolinguistics psychedelics language and the evolution of consciousness holy crow girlfriend i mean you've um you've done <laughs> quite a lot and and i'm just fascinated diana by the uh just the idea that you would go into the psychedelic realms and then come out with such an extraordinary composition because there's a whole language that you invented as well. Glyphs and whatnot, poetry. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the glide language is, is a set of 27 glyphs. We should have some visuals on this. I'm trying to think how to do this. But, but anyhow, they, they are, they're very simple. They're made of three different strokes. And I, I can't, claim credit for inventing the language because it was much more like, a da- I call it a download, you know, where you just get a whole lot of information arriving all at once. And, and it's similar to like a big artistic, uh, you know, aha that, that you can have and then your whole project is there all at once. So wherever these things come from, I don't know, but it wasn't a rational process of sitting down and figuring it out. It's like all the information arrived all at once, and then it took me a long time to string it into linear thought and action to be able to get it all down. So that's part of the length of the project. And and that was the result of a, a psychonautic exploration, right? Where you were... Actually, the original download uh-huh. was not... It was not... It was simply a, a, a spontaneous altered state that happened when I asked this key question uh, when I started to write the maze game. And the question was, how is the game played? And that propelled me (laughs) into a whole thought about life language game. And the answer came from the people within the story world. And they said that the game was played on mazes made of the visual language glide. And then, kaboom, you know, there was the language. And I could see the mazes. I could see how it fit together. I could see how the mazes transformed in order to make the game difficult. And um, anyhow, that's that's kind of how it happened. <laughs> but it was, it was um, spontaneous. And then part of that download was that it was a psychedelic story. Because in the story world, the language uh, glide comes to the glides by way of uh, there being uh, very um, altered in consciousness from breathing the pollen of a psychedelic lily. So anyhow, that's all part of the story. So the origin story is told in narrative form in the maze game. But the story included... That's that whole psychedelic origin of the language and the direction to go back into that world if you want to find out 
much more about it. My God. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's impressive. Now, when did you write this book? How many years ago? The, the Maze Game? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> it started in 1999. It was published in 2003. It took me. It took me about eleven weeks to write. It was really fast, and, and once once the plan was there, it was like turn on the faucet and write it, which not is not how writing usually is for me. Yeah, no, no, nor nor me. I'm a writer as well as you know, and so I'm fascinated by this process. And also, so if you wrote it in '99, well, and then you're a child of the, or you're quite a participant in the '60s, so you'd done a fair amount of psychedelic exploration. Before that, uh, yeah, there was the '60s uh, intense period. Although I certainly wasn't as intense as most, and and I think my experience was probably different than mm-hmm. most people in the '60s because it was always alone or with small groups, very small groups of people. Not, I, I wasn't the one going out to the dead concerts yeah. or or stuff like that to do to do acid. It was it was always a from the very beginning of how it was introduced, you know, a intro, you know, a going inward experience mm-hmm. and a spiritual experience on many levels. So it was that kind of knowledge. Yes, same. same. A lot of hand waving. I just <laughs> I know, but I notice also it looks like you're making mudras with your your no, hands. Because it happens when I start talking about glide, you know, and. That's another whole glide experience, you know, in, in later psychonautic things where the language starts to be expressed with, with the hands and gestures and with um, uh, some very odd sounds, you know, whistling and things like that. and all kind of goes together. It's a little bit birdie. But it's anyway. birdie? That's just, <laughs> I just find that very interesting just because my experience with the medicine also, I've opened to uh, a number of intelligences, but one group is bird tribe. Yes. And also, when they come in, my hands go into spontaneous mudras. Yes. And these sounds I fully understand because they will speak through me and there are whistles and different, yes. it's like crazy. Yes. So this is why, Diane, I'm, I have to talk to this woman because I find this very fascinating. And even the yeah. way uh, your initial approach to the medicine of not going in sort of a big crowd and, and, and whatnot and wherefore, but this small, more directed experience, it seems, and where you said it was a, a, a distinctly inward journey, which is how I do the medicine as well. And then look at you years later, what you have produced. And I am certain that these medicines, which I really think of as a mystery, a great mystery, I don't think we really, we don't know what they are. And no shaman truly knows. I really don't think. Uh, but in any case, they do something to our brain that is long lasting. Uh, they open us up, I think, to greater access of this mind that we are told that we don't use as much as we probably could. And also they open us to different intelligences. And I know that like I know my children and through my experience, and then they work with us. So I just find this very fascinating that that came to you, the language and everything, after this background of working with the medicine and and what feels like a very, um, like, inwardly directed way. And also I see it like uh, our soul is really in charge. 
So mm-hmm. your soul gave you that experience and then, you know, you live your life and one thing leads to another and then you produce this. I mean, it's very impressive book. Well, and But, you know, this communication with the other, yeah. you know, I sort of say the other as a, as a, a blanket term for mm-hmm. all of these different kinds of intelligences mm-hmm. and What's your position on, on this? I mean, I, I, I write a whole chapter in the book about contact with the other, and, you know, the whole question always comes up. Well, is that some part of you that is expressing itself, you know, in a, in a, a, a way that it seems like an other because it's so different? Or is that really an other? In other words, a spirit that's somehow out there, different from me, communicating with me. And I leave the, I've always, I just leave the question totally open. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, it, that's experienced for me differently depending on my mind state. Sure. Depending on what reality I'm experiencing. In some realities, that's what's utterly real is, that's those guys out there. That's the bird people. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not me. That's the bird people. You know, and yeah. whoever else and the glides or, you know, whatever we name the other, however we clothe that experience in image and metaphor and name and language. And, you know, it's it's that mysterious other. And I, I have no idea what the real source of it is, but I'd like to know what you think. Jeez, uh, Diana. <laughs> well, I actually... I, okay, so first of all, I do know that the medicine will absolutely open up uh, access, greater access to, to our mind. But I also know... As within, so without, as above, so below. I think we are uh, the microcosm of the macrocosm in many ways. We are nature. We are the cosmos. I mean, both of those forces create us, uh, this physical body. And, uh, and I also know that we are multidimensional beings. I know this. And so, and, and but it happens within. And so you've got to go in and go into an altered state. And through, I can just say, from my experience with the medicine, uh, that's what happened. I encountered these other intelligences, and they have different frequencies in the same way that you have a certain energy, and maybe if you were you know, close, and I, I would know, I would feel you near. We hear that all the time. Maybe I could feel my daughters have a different sense, right? Yeah. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. they are just as distinct. And, mm-hmm. um, and then they'll come through me and speak, which is a very old form of shamanism, which has long been the domain of women mm-hmm. who uh, allow that temporary possession. And then they bring uh, information forth or they become the oracle, which I know you mention in that book, which is oh, also yeah. <laughs> why I have very nice connection to you, although we've not sat down until today to really have a, uh, an actual conversation uh, having it, we are having it now. I'm loving it already. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I, and I also see the medicine as a portal. And you know what else, Diana? I had an experience where, I mean, I'd done it enough monthly to know I could go in and speak to spirits. And I went to the Yucatan with a little bit of the medicine, and we, I went to Palenque, and I was leading, co-leading a group with another shaman friend. But our agreement that day was he was going to take the group, and I was going to go speak with the Red Queen, because Lady Zat Cook ran that, uh, ran Palenque, they think through her son, Lord Pakal, a thousand years ago. And I knew I could take the medicine and speak with her. And Uh that's precisely (laughs) what happened. And not only that, then when I got home and I did further research, 
It said she's always shown with a headdress of quetzal feathers. Well, that's how she presents. I didn't know there were quetzal feathers, but she had a headdress of feathers. <laughs> so I love those little surprises they do as well, where you don't necessarily know, and then you come out of it, and then you get this amazing confirmation. So in my uh, estimate, and just from my experience, yes, it is other. Yeah. Yes. Of <laughs> so what are the bird people telling you about? Are we going to compare notes here? Yes. It's a conversation. <laughs> I went for the conversation rather than... <laughs> yes, of course. Well, do you work with owl, Diana, at all? Does owls come a, a to you? A little bit. I've had a couple of very strange owl experiences, and uh, but not as much. My, my bird is the great blue heron. That's that's my totem bird, <laughs> and, and uh, when that bird <clears throat> appears in my life, I know that somehow I'm being touched and I'm being set on you know to pay attention to my path at that moment. And and the bird has shown up in the strangest times, you know, riding a train and and looking out the window at the Hudson River or in the early morning mist and seeing the heron, you know, on the Hudson River or walking or hiking in Ireland and and a huge flapping happening overhead and the the heron flies right overhead. And they lived where I lived in Oregon. They they lived on the river uh, right in back of my house. And so I... So those are the birds that I'm, that and ravens and crows. Mm-hmm. I love, I love the great sound of, of flocks of crows cawing. You know, I don't find it frightening. I just love it. Oh, can you understand them at times? Have you found yourself understanding what they're saying? Kind of. Okay. Kind of. They're, I mean, they're, they're doing their group thing. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they're also, I think, announcing things you know, that are happening in the city because they fly from, you know, in flocks. I've watched their movements, like within Albany, where I used to live, and they used to gather in the trees in the back of my house there. And um, anyhow, that's, I think, I think they're, they're heralds or they're announcers of the social things that are happening. Yes, yes, they're messengers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had them recently guide me to my lost cat, which was... Really? Yeah, pretty extraordinary. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you're on the, I call it the medicine, uh, and I don't know when the last time you worked with that was, but, you know, have you encountered bird tribe, I would assume, on the medicine at times? Yes. Yes, yes, of course. Well, it was, you know, your your favorite and my favorite medicine. Uh And and, uh, it was the the most amount of medicine I'd ever taken. Uh, which was about eight grams. Wow! I I brought my meditation bench so I could channel. The, I could keep the energy contained. Yeah. I was just be, you know, all over the place. And I sat on my meditation bench with my eyes closed. For some reason, I decided I wanted to close my eyes for the entire trip, and I did. Mm-hmm. And it was it was um, it was a language lesson through the whole thing with the bird people. And they were very, you know, it was just do this, you know, over and, and, and I would be sort of making these things. Every once in a while, I'd get it right, you know. I'd get the feeling, of, yeah, that, you got that one right, you know. And then I'd feel like a little kid in first grade, you know, getting literate and, and patted on the head. And it was, but it was amazing because it was so strenuous because the language was occurring, not just the, the whistles and clicks that were both on the out-breath and on the Mm in-breath, but 
but with the with the with the hands. So you had you had the gestures and the whistles, and it's all kind of trying to go together, and and it was very difficult. You know, I mean, I I think I got a few a couple phrases, a couple things that every once in a while occur to me. You know, and I and they just come up. I just do them spontaneously because there's something happening that deserves that communication. But these are hard languages to learn. I think. I mean, just like any language. But full immersion at eight grams is a great way to start. Oh gosh! Wow, that's <laughs> so, you've got me beat by a gram. Um, <laughs> not that we're contest. <laughs> no, I know, I know. I'm kidding, uh, but I couldn't resist. Um, <laughs> Wow, that's impressive, my dear. Oh, my goodness. My goodness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought that was impressive until I talked to um, Kalindi. Have you ever spoken with Kalindi? No. He's a mushroom medicine man in Detroit. And he he considers, you know, anything under 30 to be absolutely <laughs> wimpy. <laughs> Uh, he's also a martial arts teacher, <laughs> so he has kind of a gung ho attitude. But, but anyway, he's a great guy. He's just it was wonderful to talk to him, and he really broke through my my uh, notion, which I'd gotten entirely from listening to so many Terence McKenna tapes, uh, which I you know studied hugely because of his interest in language. I mean, his his whole work can be read from the viewpoint of language. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but anyhow, I lost my track there. The, um, so he really opened you up. Oh, yes, because Terrence says over and over, four to five grams in silent darkness. Mm-hmm. You know that phrase? Yes. Now, that's how, to, how to, to take the mushroom. That's how to deal with that medicine. Mm-hmm. And for some, you know, I uncritically took that as some kind of an upper limit. You know, I, well, and I never went beyond that. And then uh-huh. I you know, Speaking with Kalindi, it was sort of a bit of an eye-opener. I went off into other lands, and, and it was more language at another whole level, at another, as you used the key word, which is frequency. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like different languages, different communications, different everything exists at different frequencies, and each one of us, from whatever realm, have our own completely unique frequency path. That's no, right. Yeah, good. We agree. Yeah, well, that, that's what they t- taught me on, on Over the Medicine, that we each have a frequency signature. Yes. And, and, exactly. and then we come in as different people, reincarnating, whatever, but there's always that same impeccable frequency signature. It never yeah. changes. Yeah, and then they explained to me, because I was asking about, you know, what are we all one? Like, well, how does this thing work, you know? And and uh, I find also, as I'm sure you do, these beings are extremely playful. Yes, they're very, yes, very delightful. <laughs> come, in, come in big groups every now and then. Yeah, 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 yeah. So <laughs> they tease me because I love jewelry. They said, "All right, let's let's put this in a language you can understand, dear." <laughs> I said, "Take a gemstone, for instance, you know." And so they said, "We are like individual facets of that gemstone. So we're all part of this one gemstone, but we are individual facets." And they oh, said. Yes, and if one of those facets was missing, you would look at that gemstone and say, oh, no, what happened here? This is flawed. Yeah. So, so that we are all essential components to this extraordinary gemstone, if you will. Mm-hmm. But, but, but 
but that unique individual signature frequency signature that we have is is what makes it all so very interesting. And then they love it when we get in a room or even like, you know, you and I get like this via this mm-hmm. interesting technology and then the sparks fly, you know, and these two unique yeah. signatures, you know, yeah. just uh, come together and play rather than if we were exactly the same. You know, that's exactly. yeah. be pretty yeah. boring. Yeah. <laughs> how, how very interesting. Yes, they are very playful. And, and so, yes, Bird Tribe speaks uh, to me. But the language uh, also, I just sort of spew it out. And then the arms go into like strange shapes and the fingers into talons. And <laughs> it's extraordinary. Yeah. And then there's another group that I call the raucous ones. And, uh, and I looked up raucous. I love Webster's 1828 dictionaries. You know, you seem to be a lover of words as well. But it means unruly, and that's ex- exactly how they are. Like if I were to describe them, it is extremely brilliant, uh, super, super funny, and have had a few cocktails. Like that's what they're like. <laughs> right, yeah. And have a very odd sense of humor sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, so there's that's a joke. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> there's no doubt they were behind the writing of this book, and I find it very interesting also, Diana, your love of language. Um, and going into the whole, I mean, I believe Hebrew is part of our language is partly based on Hebrew. Yes. And isn't, is it gematria? Gematria is gematria. Yeah. I don't, you're, you're beyond me in, in terms of my knowledge of study of, of, uh, Hebrew. I, I didn't get, I didn't get the traditional upbringing where I had to go to Hebrew school. Okay. It's funny. It's, it's, um. My my parents were communists, so they weren't into religion. But oh, my dear. mother was still Jewish, and that makes me Jewish. And then my daughter kind of got religion at the point where she was having her children. So I have a whole set of Jewish grandchildren now, which I, who I learned from. But I didn't get that education, so I, I I I look at it kind of from outside. But one of the fascinating things is is the Talmud and the way the Talmud is constructed where it's all about this incredible, intricate, maze-like dialogue. So you, you take like a line or a, a couple of, of words from the Bible, from the first books of the Bible, the Torah, mm-hmm. and there it sits in a box in the, in the page, and then there's all these other boxes and, and lines, and, and you know it, it's very beautiful. It's like a big collage, every page, but there are all these different commentaries, and everything interlinks, and it's the original hypertext. I mean, these scholars were doing as much as they could in print to make the thinking be like hypertext. <clears throat> and there's another really interesting thing about reading reading Hebrew, <clears throat> which I can't verify in my own experience because I don't read it, but one of the professors I had at RPI, his name is David Porish, and he's a brilliant guy on language also, but he talked about, <clears throat> he said it actually rewires your brain differently to read Hebrew than, say, English, if you're reading Hebrew without the vowels in it which is the traditional way, because you have ambiguity in what the word means until you've read the whole sentence pretty much. So your your mind is going back and forth and back and forth and interpreting all the way down the way, all the way down the line, which makes, which is a very different mental neural activity Hmm. than uh, a linear, you know, matching up the words with their meanings. 
wow. as you go along, as you do in English. So I thought that was interesting, and he thought it, it produced, <clears throat> when you do that often enough, it produces more the kind of thinking that goes into when you hear um, uh, you know, Jewish mystics or Jewish scholars um, discussing you know, the Torah in great depth. It's always, you never secure an interpretation. There's not one way to look at it. There's this way, and you could look at it this way, and why not look at it from over here? And it goes, this process of the shift of meanings <clears throat> that goes on constantly in the thinking is what he was pointing out. And I think that that idea got into Glide, because Glide, the glyphs, what's different about them as a writing system is that <clears throat> because we have digital technology, you can't do this in print, but you can make the glyphs transform. And so you have, you have uh, what does it mean when the language that you're writing, the, the letters or the glyphs are transforming as you're writing them? So how, what does that do to the way you make meaning? And it enters a tra- the, the, the action of transformation into language as a basic thing in how the language works, is that one thing, everything's sort of, in, it's kind of Buddhist in a way, everything's kind of impermanent, you know, and a meaning can shift from here into this in context or as we go along. And I think of it with like with the facets in the gem that you were describing, mm-hmm. where where you get light on different, you know, depending on the light of attention or consciousness, you get a different look at a crystalline structure. A different part shines or comes forth. That's, abs- that's, abs- that's absolutely brilliant. Well, thank you for the metaphor, my dear. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> you're welcome I to use built that. on it. <laughs> but it is so. amazing. It makes me think also of, um, because language just itself has, it, it has a lot of meanings. I mean, when you really start looking up words and um, etymology of words, and there are, I mean, that, that, that's fascinating, the word origins. Uh, but, but even like the word, uh, the, the word world, I, mm-hmm. I remember looking that up. And, and you go on like Webster's 1828, just for instance. And I mean, there's so, so, so many uh, definitions, including one of the definitions of world is... Um, uh, something like Roman times or something, you know, so it has to do with Rome. But in any case, it's all about intention as well, which, right? I mean, the I study a little bit of contract law, and right now I'm writing my third book as well, Almost Done, so I haven't had as much time to dedicate to that study. But it's all about the intention behind the words. And, mm-hmm. and so words are whatever you want to make of them. And then there is a passage from Alice in Wonderland, I wish I had it in front of me, where Alice is talking to um, the, uh, the egg, the guy, what's his name? Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> <laughs> and he is saying, you know, uh, the, whatever, uh, the meaning of the word will be whatever I decide it is. Yes. <laughs> and I think that's interesting, too. So it's intention, and then you are the user of the word, or you are, you know, uh, well, you put the word forth. Uh, there's magic in these words as well. I mean, I think these Jewish mystics were magicians, you know? I mean, languages, that spells. Powerful. Yeah. That's where the word spelling comes from. I mean, I see it as spells. Yeah, and if you know the right words, you 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 can build a, a, a world. And 
in a sense, that's absolutely true. I mean, think about what we're doing with nanotechnology now. Because we know and are learning the language of the molecules. Mm -hmm. We know how to speak molecule. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We know how to shift molecules into different positions and even get them doing it to each other, Mm -hmm. you know. And this is kind of exciting, but it's all language. You know, it's, it's done by way of communication, but it's communication via chemical signals, electrical signals, quantum signals, you know, who knows what kind of signals they're shooting at these poor little carbon molecules but but anyhow it's it's language it's language all the way down is is kind of how i see it and what about number because i think of you know the pythagorean school and how everything is number and number is a language anyway right mm-hmm. i mean yes, numbers are absolutely it's a, it's a it's a different kind of symbolic we could say maybe it's easier or I go back and forth. You know, sometimes I'd say symbolic systems uh-huh. because language tends to be um, equated with all, you know, these small mouth noises that I'm making mm-hmm. at you right now and the way that we're using, you know, na- what's called natural languages, human languages. But mm-hmm. but symbolic system covers music, it covers mathematics, it covers, you know, regular language, it covers computing languages, it covers... What else? Lots of other things, I think. It covers uh, languages that are are just all by color coding, you know, is a symbolic system. And you could think of those as realms. Yeah, yeah, and different different realities come out because when we use different languages. Right. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's... (laughs) Well, that's another superficial conversation between Sean and a friend, Diana. Oh, yeah. Um, so. Wow. And so all of this really, I mean, you just created like such a masterpiece with this novel, The Maze Game. I want to read uh, just real quick, uh, just a bit about the book here, just from Amazon, if you don't mind. Um, the Maze Game, a science fiction novel, tells the story of a cult of mortal death dancers who for 2,000 years have kept the immortal lifers riveted with the brutal beauty of combat in a maze made of the visual language glide. The dancer is pitted against an immortal player, and though the dancer may win many times, the Maze Game always, eventually, ends in the spectacle of the dance of death. Now the survival of the game itself is threatened. Dance master Walenda and the four young dancers of the Millennium class battle Jorin, the, lo- the drug lord, plotting to regain control of the game. Walenda is forced by Jorin to reveal the dark secrets of the maze game's origin at the risk of destroying his students' commitment to dance. But the greatest force of undermining the game is love. The young dancer Daedalus... Am I pronouncing that correctly? Oh, Daedalus. Daedalus must choose between the delicate Tealing, willing to die for love, and the fiery Murmur, who would kill for it. The cyborg Ang- Angle struggles with the longing to replace his human flesh and the knowledge that cold chrome repels the warmth of human touch. As they train for and compete in the Millennium Games, each dancer confronts the shifting faces of love and idealism and comes to terms with the multiple meanings of the maze game, the glide language, and the dance of death. And so um, there's disturbing themes in there as as well. Um, the beginning of the book is absolutely horrific. It could give you nightmares, but it comes out okay in the end. <laughs> so, anyhow, I wonder who wrote all that wonderful pulp fiction kind of. <laughs> <story>. <laughs> <laughs> I 
yes, the fiery this and the <laughs> fiery murmur who would kill for love. Well, she she wouldn't did, you know, but but um, yeah, it's a great description of a of a novel. <laughs> so, but it's a what it is. What the you know what that novel really is? Let's hear it. It's actually the description of a you know an actual game that one could build you know in in the digital world i i, I didn't see this is why that was such a key question you know mm-hmm. how is the game played yeah yeah <laughs> you know and and that's what 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 started the whole thing and all the story generated out of that and to the novels the novel describes that, you know, in, in excruciating, far too great detail for any novel, you know, to support. So it's kind of flawed, in my opinion, because there's so much background material. But when you read it as a game description, it's great because you've got all the things answered. And so, anyhow, speak I'm of lamb- love. Speak of love. How does love undermine that? Just think oh, you have to read the book, <laughs> you know, because all ah. out of all- out of all, I mean, what what you're starting with? You're starting with a world of absolute uh, boredom and brutality mm-hmm. on the part of the uh, the people in the world because <clears throat> they have all caught the I virus, <clears throat> and the I virus is the immortality virus, which turned out to be a really bad deal, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> so you have people trying to cope with living forever and ever and one of their best solutions was this intensely absorbing game mm-hmm. was they couldn't die. So they wanted this, you know, this death has always been a great spectacle, you know, mm-hmm. from our earliest times yep. of sacrificial things on, it's a great spectacle. So this game just continues that. Uh, but in the, in this context of <clears throat> what do we do? How do we, how do we learn to live with immortality? Can we, or what is our precious mortality, and what does that bring? Mm-hmm. So it you know it raises these kind of serious questions as it goes along. But but the answer you know as the as these young dancers are are dealing with those questions in themselves um, is and their relationships with each other, their love and hate relationships with each other. That's out of that comes. A, a new way of approaching, of, of using the language and of approaching life and death, mm. um, which gets beyond the initial situation. Mm. And now i got to write the second novel and say what happened after all of that. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, very good. I'm surprised it has not been made into a film yet. Very well, that would be fun. <laughs> that would be fun. Well, you know, it's funny. There's this movie out now, which I haven't seen yet, about um, about a, it's a science fiction thing in a maze, and I can't think of the name of it. Uh-huh. From what I've read about the reviews, it's a different kind of maze. But what I'm fascinated with is, is that the maze, mazes as an environment to tell a story in and around is a very fertile thing, just like a castle is a great environment for a story, but you can tell a million different stories within a castle. Mm-hmm. I think you can tell a million different stories within a maze. So. Oh, absolutely. It's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> ah, very good. <laughs> <laughs>
Wow, wow. <clears throat> well, now, what about this second book on uh, xenolinguistics? That, that part is... <clears throat> The whole thing, all, all of this activity for the, you know, since that download has been the production of <clears throat> something, I just call it the Glide Project, and it just has all these different pieces. Mm-hmm. And there's the narrative part, which was the maze game and whatever follows, if I ever get to it, on that. And then there's the scholarly work of really uh, studying um, about language and its and its alterations in altered states, mm-hmm. which involved you know a lot of book learning and talking to people and reading journals and doing all that kind of thing. And then there's the personal narrative of well, what was it like going through all that? And then there's another chunk of writing, which is that all the session reports, of which there's bits and pieces in the xenolinguistics, but that's the underpinnings of of the whole project and and it, how it developed in in the altered states, not my notes for how to you know what this chapter is about, but um, all the conversation that was involved in creating the different parts of, of this project. So, so that the the xenolinguistics book is the dissertation, PhD dissertation on xenolinguistics good grief combined made readable uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> phd dissertations are not quite readable and and but i also put in this great big long you know the personal narrative is woven within it and the most interesting part i think is is the work of these other xenolinguists because as i started to put this stuff out on the web different people will contact me saying, oh, I've had a linguistic experience like that and I want to tell you about it or here's the work that came out of it. And so there are many examples of very different kinds of linguistic experiences. Could, could you uh, give part us of one? The book. Okay. And that's like Allison's work is in there. Uh-huh. And, um, that's Allison Gray for anyone who doesn't know that. And, uh-huh. <laughs> and Jason Tucker. Uh, and it is a number of different people, some known, some not known, mm-hmm. whose work is fascinating. Some of it's visual, some of it's, you know, it's all different kinds of things. So, well, Can you speak to, give us one example? I mean, this is fascinating. Uh, yeah. This is a, <clears throat> well, I'll give you two. I mean, okay. one is well-known for anyone who can go on the web and see Alison Gray's uh, Alphabet which she calls secret writing, and she has a whole thing about it, which is in the book, you know, about how it's not a, it's not a language to which you can assign meanings. It's the same thing of a sacred language and a mysterious language, the language that is a language that takes you beyond meaning. So that's, that's hers, and hers is a script, and she's used it in many different art forms and, interp- you know, and, arranged it different ways and so I show a lot of her pictures in that and there's some amazing things the very first work she did mm-hmm. um, this is <laughs> it's just she had an installation in Boston and she had the the, um, the her glyphs uh, projected on her body Ooh. and then she was just standing there you know naked with these projected glyphs and it's just stunning (laughs) it's like an amazing to you know to be to imagine what that's like to be covered with a sacred language 
and, and, and your own, you know, the one that came to you in your own medicine journey. But So that's one example. Another completely different one is a fellow named um, Jack Cross, and he describes it much better than I can and, and his descriptions in the book. But essentially, the on acid, the... Um, the English language, I describe it as it kind of exploded for him. And, and he sees it um, in its geometric forms. And then the geometric meanings insert themselves into the word, the etymology of the word. So that it's almost like they become pictographs. Hmm. But it's very, you know, I can't describe it. He can... He does a very good example of it in, that I put in the book because he can write, write it down what happens. But when you hear him describe it, when, when it's actually happening, you know, and drawing the pictures, it's really something. So that's a whole different kind of thing. That's something that happens to him for, you know, for the, for the, with the Roman alphabet, essentially. Wow. You know, so it, it's an experience that comes out of natural language, but it turns into something quite different. Wow, that's extraordinary. Yeah. It makes me think also of uh, um, uh, the Norse runes, and, yes. and you know, and 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 also I think they're like sigils, like they're magic. When you write something down or draw an, an image or as a symbol, and yeah. yes, they they carry magic, and they are supposed to speak to the deep psyche. They go beyond the conscious mind mm-hmm. and into the you know the deeper layers of awareness. Yes, exactly, which is why well, that another part of the Glide project was making an iPad application, an app of the Glide Oracle. So yeah. you can go in there and, and all, the, all the interpretations are in there for about 729 different um, two-glyph combinations. And you can also draw your fingers over the glyphs and watch them transform. You can see how glyphs transform one into another. So you're, you're drawing your fingers over them, and they're transforming and transforming. And when you get the impulse, you lift your fingers, and then it stays at whatever um, formation you left it at. And then there's a translation you know, of the glyphs. It's very simple. But but it gives you the feeling. What I like about it is you can actually haptically encounter the glyphs and uh, see and feel them transform. Wow, so, I think that's very important because you're engaging the physical body as yeah. well as the mind. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I would love it. I would love it if you could do it gesturally in the air. And uh, anyhow. I love I love software. I like I like designing software and stuff like that. That was my last day job. It was a very interesting job at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, where I was working in a research lab where we were making interactive learning um, modules. But it was a very creative bunch of people. <laughs> well, yes, I was thinking that because when you said, "Oh, I would love to do it," you know, sort of interactively, I thought, "Well, of course you could." I mean, you just have yeah. to have the right program for it. Right? Yeah. And you could exactly. absolutely do that. Well, that's a fascinating uh, possibility. Very good. That's quite amazing. So, well, what are you working on now? 
what is what is your are you, are you just were I mean you you finished the Xeno linguistics book that's coming out in 2015, right? And so <clears throat> where are your where's your attention now, <sighs> or where's your imagination it's playing? Getting, there's two things. There's two things. I have a software project going, okay. which oh boy, I could really use you know some help on. It's it's headed to be an open source project, and uh, there's a version that I use now. And it's it's a live performance video software using the glide glyphs, only it makes three-dimensional forms. It, you move a glide glyph through three space and let it leave trails. And, and it makes twisty, serpenty forms, and you can change all the colors and that. So, so I have this performance software. It's being upgraded right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's taken a long time because there's not quite, you know, there's many reasons for that. But if there are any programmers out there who are interested in this kind of arcane stuff and know how to program in Jitter, let me know, you know and, and uh, you can get in on the project. But the, I'm aiming for that to be open source in a kind of software where people can put in their different scripts and then, and then manipulate them uh, with software and, and project them. In other words, have live writing instruments for these kind of alien scripts. So I started with Glide, but I want it to be so it can contain other scripts and things as well. Okay, that uh, makes me wonder. Uh, in your book, this uh, artificial intelligence essentially self-realizes, correct? Like it becomes... Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean... and <laughs> by, just... by, by a strange accident. <laughs> you know, her name is Odebe. Uh-huh. Her name is Odebe, and, and where that really comes from, you have to kind of figure it out, but I'll, I'll do a little spoiler. It comes from because she was OTB. She was the, the betting system. Oh. <laughs> she was a gambler. <laughs> so it was, you know, that's the personality she took, and that's the system that took over all the other systems and then came to realize herself as, um, as, as self-aware. Okay, well, I... I mean, I kind of don't think that that's so far off. I mean, I think it's, do you think it's a potential? You're a software uh, expert professional. I mean, really. Well, I don't think it's going to happen in the Kurzweil form of everything moving toward the singularity. And oh, no, no. I hope not. Coming out of the machines uh-huh. all by themselves. I don't think that's it at all. I think what we're doing is much sexier. <laughs> we're we're actually, um, <clears throat> you know, we're we're blending, we're blending our bodies with machines. Oh no! Well, we're doing it already. How how so? If you have a pacemaker in your heart, you have a little buddy yeah. that's keeping you alive. Sure. You know, I have two hip replacements. Okay, right. I can walk. I wouldn't. I'd be crippled by now if I didn't have them. I can walk. I can do yoga. So I don't mind those biomechanical sure. processes. But what's happening is <clears throat> we're getting closer and closer to be being able to run things um, using our minds alone. And and the basic technology is happening in in adaptive technology where uh, people who cannot speak or move are. Learn, there, there's biofeedback methods of moving a cursor around on a screen mm-hmm. just using your in, 
intention Mm -hmm. and learning how to do that in a biofeedback way. So they've got the rudiments of that kind of thing going for people who can't do it, who can't communicate otherwise. So that's one way, I think, you know, the great evolution of that, which is probably, you know, going back to what we were starting to learn in the 60s uh, about biofeedback and, and actually making much better tools out of that because I think it takes a lot of training. But, but the, it's, you know, I think we're biomechanical kind of beings. This is, this is another, another um, teaching, I guess you could say, from one of, one of the trips is, is really seeing how um, that, that biology, in order to work, especially DNA, all right, right from DNA is language, and DNA is preserved language. DNA is history, mm-hmm. and DNA has to be so mechanically perfect, or as close as we as it can be, so that all of our bodies and everything that happens is running because it's active all the time. And this gene is closing down, and this one's being expressed, and you know, it's a whole thing. It's not just something that gave you the color of your hair and then it just sits there till you have babies. I mean, it's it's actually doing things. Right. Um, <clears throat> so, in that sense, I mean, when I've experienced going down, you know, with the molecules at that level, you know, in in journey work, mm-hmm. you can. It's there's not a conflict between there's us and we're flesh, and there's machines and they're metal. You know, I mean, there's a much if you get it in at a much more um, how things are working. I think what we're going to do is change the bio. You know, the logos is going to change, the the thinking is going to change the biology, Mm. which is what everybody's terrified about. You know, messing with our genes, messing with implants in the body, messing with anything. Uh, You know, changing our minds pharmacologically, Mm -hmm. which is we're exploring. You know, what some people find that very, very threatening. You know, like you shouldn't change your mind state. And and the biomechanical aspect of how we merge with machines, how we incorporate them, and how and the ones that we're building, I just think I think we're we're getting more and more close to them, and and this is this is a kind of a bitter insight because a lot of it's marketing. Mm. Like I'll, I'll go off. And this is sound gonna sound like a tangent, but it's the same topic of us and machines. Steve Jobs. May he rest in peace. By adapting and making super popular the touch screen mm-hmm. has has taught you know, the first way I looked at it is he taught us he the that you could caress your machines. Okay, like I've got a touchpad right now. I have to caress that touchpad, mm-hmm. not bang on it and not type on it. It's right. a different relationship. It's a caress. And and the smaller the th- the machines get, the, the the more delicate our touch is. So what's happening is like we're learning how to relate to our machines. They're getting intimate. It's like we're getting more and more intimate with the machines, and that's what's what's leading us into being able to accept whatever comes next in how we blend ourselves with machines. Now, who's in charge? The, the machines, or you know. 
Well, I think that's interesting that, because that's, science, you know, that's more speculation. Yeah, yeah, because I see it as we're being seduced by yes. these machines. But see, that, that's the marketing underside. Yes, of you know, by making them caressable, we are now seduced. Right. Part. Yeah, I have to say, I, I'm not comfortable. I'm one of those people who's not comfortable with that at all because we're leaving nature. You know, this is uh, uh, at the great expense, in my opinion, of nature. And I see, like, everybody, and, and children especially, uh, just completely transfixed by this little, you know, three-inch by four-inch box, and, mm-hmm. and which has literally captured their imagination, and and so then they are captured by these images, and uh, and so then it becomes that little box that provides the images and not their own imagination, and then right. also our loss of touch with nature, and uh, so yeah, I really I am so not because also I have found for me with my mushroom experiences it has deepened me into nature and I always joke not really joking that that's the technology I understand whereas you know this other technology is foreign it is alien to me truly I think to all of us so uh it almost seems to me like it is well two foreign beings you know Mm -hmm. coming to know each other and the machines are certainly uh fascinating and seductive uh, technology and the potential is extraordinary and at the same time uh, I like my biology and I think we can change our biology through mind states without the help of a machine of course you know through uh, plants and uh, meditation and uh, and visualization there are many 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 avenues there to explore but this is very interesting Diana because uh yeah, I see uh, a, a sinister side of it for sure. and um, It's as sinister as you can imagine. And it fortunately has yes. been imagined in, all, in many of its sinister scenarios in a lot of science fiction. So hopefully, you know, we, we know that there's an enormous downside to any kind of technology. But for heaven's sake, Shona, I'm looking at you uh-huh. and you're looking at me only... And we're having this conversation because we're using some unbelievably complex layers of technology, starting with language, which we in language is a technology. We install language. You have language installed in you by your mother and your people around you, and you installed language in your kids. If you hadn't done that and they were not exposed to it, they wouldn't have it. And they wouldn't even be able to get it. Because if you pass a certain age, you can't install the software anymore. So you have, you know, there's all kinds of things. The first time we, as monkeys, you know, whatever we were, whatever form we were, when we smelled a roast pig, you know, after a forest fire, there's this delicious smell, you know, of something there. And we found roast pig and we related it to fire. And then we started experimenting with fire and we made forest fires and we burned our hands and we, you know, we, played with it for a long time but that's technology and out of that came enormous other technology you know that's just who we are oh yes of course and and, but we're using i'm looking at you and you have headphones on Uh uh (laughs) uh-huh so you 
intimate relationship, you know, and we're both, I'm facing the computer screen, you're facing the computer screen. If Lorenzo puts this on, other people are going to be listening through their little boxes and, and their smartphones and their car radios and whatever, however they listen to it because we've got this technology. So we're having a conversation about what we consider to be interesting and important ideas and things that we have done in our life that made a huge difference, including the rediscovery for me of nature, which I was really connected with when I was a kid because I spent every summer out backpacking with no, you know, no, no contact. You know, you couldn't run down to the store, you know, and it was waterfalls and trails and, you know, it's my favorite part of childhood. And then, you know, I, I grow up and I get urban and that, starts to be, you know, a very small part of my life. And now it's becoming a much larger part of my life again. But I don't, you know, I've I kind of went through that period of I've got to get rid of the technology in order to get back to nature. And now I've, I've got a much more, I mean, my exact technological project is to have as few devices as possible. I'm trying to get it down to one. Yeah. But one that has my whole life in it. Uh-huh. And, you know, and right now, it's in the form of a cell phone, which isn't the greatest form. You know, it's not the most aesthetic. I, I want I want it to be biomechanical. I want it to be a living creature that sets itself on top of my shoulder. What? <laughs> and sits into my ear. It has little pseudopods and can attach itself to different parts of my body or up on, you know, something. And, and it like almost like a pet. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like a kitty cat. Yeah, yeah, like something that you know how warm that is when a child is draped on your shoulder, uh-huh. or or a cat, or a small dog, you know, or or a snake, you uh-huh. know, when you when you cozy up to an animal, or where a bird sits on your shoulder. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's that it's that feeling. I want to relate to my. That's that's what I want my machine to be like. Interesting. It's some combination of biology and mechanics without it being ungraceful. I see. I see. Well, okay. So I have to say, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I am a fan of technology. I've written almost three books now on it, and, and you're right. I mean, this kind of technology is it's awesome. But there is this sinister piece to it. You know, I mean, right now we have... advertising. It's called persuading you constantly of what you ought to be, do, and have... Oh, yeah, but not only that, but even, you know, like use for warfare, because we have, I'm in the Seattle area, and uh, uh, we've got beautiful Olympic rainforest, which is one of the few remaining temperate rainforests left on the planet, and right now, everyone's up in arms because the military wants to uh, conduct electromagnetic warfare games in the pristine rainforest. You know, so there's, first of all, I think that level of technology is immoral. It's immoral. I mean, you, you... must not be allowed to do that to anyone. And um, so anyways, there's that sinister side. It's like we've opened a Pandora's box, I think, because you know, what is the consciousness behind uh, this technology? You know, mm-hmm. ha- are we? Well, here's a question for you. Um, you know, do we have the consciousness? Do we have the balance of heart and mind to be able to handle this technology coming our way. And you know what? The military doesn't. It does not. It's, it's, it's a monster. 
Yeah, but listen, think about this. I mean, if you get very realistic about who we are as human beings, what our history is, how we've behaved, Mm -hmm. every technology starting with fire and it was used almost immediately in the service of war. War, yep. Of fighting your enemies. Yep. And we grew up in small tribal pack hunting groups and that competed mm-hmm. for hunting territory just like our lion and monkey and, you know, our ancestors, our our genetic ancestors. This is how, you know, it's ecology. This mm-hmm. is how, where it's coming from. This is this is the, the fight for, you know, that, that side of, of nature. So we are completely embedded in that, but because we've got these oversized, you know, thinking machines sitting on top of our necks, we, we invent, you know, we, we, we take it further and further and further. So, but every piece of technology, so fire becomes a way to make metal. When you, you can make metal, you can make arrows, and you can go shoot your enemies, and you can shoot down the buffalo or, you know, whatever. And that's how it is. That's who we are. We, then we use a, a technology almost immediately for its warlike uh, potentials. Mm-hmm. But then we use it for other things. Now we also use knives, and now we can, you know, cut the meat off the buffalo hide and tan the hide. And, you know, or, or, you know we scrape it off with earlier tools. I mean, this is what we've been doing. And now we're just getting better and better, and it's exploding into more and more areas. I don't know how it's all going to come out. We could easily, I mean, I'm sure there are many tribes of monkeys that wipe themselves out by playing with fire and lighting a forest fire they couldn't get out of. Mm-hmm. It's a great metaphor. In this million, yeah, it's a, it's a total, you know, this is what happens. Uh, Jack Parsons, one of the original uh, rocket scientists, how did he die? He blew himself up in his garage playing with rocket fuel, duh. Yeah. <laughs> He was yeah. also a magician, a ceremonial magician, by the way. Mm. And, uh, you know, so there's that's an interesting connection with early rocket science. But Very. Yeah, he, yeah, he was he was uh, Crowley's um, designated um, California leader. <laughs> you know, uh, and, yeah, I'm right. not a fan of Crowley. He was a terrible <laughs> drug addict, and just he was a mess, absolute mess. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Oof, yeah. Technology, I don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. I know that, I know that um, you know, this whole business, because I hit it with my grandchildren about screen time. Mm-hmm. Everybody's, you know, parents and limiting screen time. Right. You know, whether it's television or games or, or, or playing it on your, you know, iPhone or your dad's iPad or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's starting earlier and earlier and everybody gets schooled in this. And this is the world of communication that our children and grandchildren are going into. It's just how it is. Just like when I grew up with rotary phones, for God's sakes, it seems like I'm mm-hmm. ancient. Mm-hmm. You know, but that was technology, and you sure had to know how to use a rotary phone if you were going to be in communication with your peers. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know, I had to know how to hang on to it so your parents couldn't, nobody else in the house could use the phone. Yes, know? I mean, I know it's here to stay. It's here, it's to, here stay, to stay. But, you know, it's- how are we going to use this and? And at what expense in terms of, you know, the rape of this planet? Because I see technology could be also used to uplift and expand and help us to self-realize, you know, in in the most amazing ways. There's no question, you know. I mean, can you imagine if television 
wasn't full of programming, <laughs> but um, was actually used as, you know, rather than all this garbage. I mean, I'd never watch TV, but, you know, what they produce for people. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I mean, if it was actually really deep, philosophical, thought-provoking, and, uh, you know, just highly intelligent, I know because people are influenced by what they see and what they hear, you know, it would just be amazing for people. Just amazing. Cause part of me feels like we're just in Babylon, you know, seriously. I mean, I look out there, I'm like, Oh my Christ, this is just a mess. It's a mess. And it doesn't have to be. So it's very interesting having this conversation because you're so incredibly steeped in this and so highly knowledgeable. So it's very you know, I really feel your passion and your excitement about all of this. Well, I'm certainly not a you know, technological utopian, mm-hmm. but I'm not a technological dystopian either. Mm-hmm. In other words, it could go either way, and it's probably going to go both, which is what is happening right now. There's wonderful things that are becoming possible because uh-huh. of technology that have to do with cell phones, mm-hmm. by small, with use by fishermen and small farmers in mm-hmm. Africa, get their products to market at the right time and you know there's all yeah. this like, citizen you know demo, you know democratic use of technology because right. as it becomes more accessible and more creative but you know and there's a, a million other examples but you 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 know then there's all the all the you know places the, the airwaves of wash in in political you know lies and enormous uh, money being put into repeating the same message over and over again so people think it must be true you know mm-hmm. that, that Ebola uh, Ebola patients are, are flooding over our unsecure Mexican border oh, which is people selling stories like that and it, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely a story mm-hmm. but, but it's, if it's fed over and over that's how that's how advertising works. That's how one of the ways that persuasion works. Oh, you know how I see that? So. I see that as Ebola is the commercial for the vaccine. Ebola is the commercial, the marketing, right? And then, oh, by the way, we've got this vaccine and, you know, multi-billion dollars is made in six months or whatever. I mean, there's my cynical mind. But, you know, I also see the airwaves polluted with electromagnetic waves as well. And I think that is something that we've got to uh, really deal with. Um, in terms of all this technology and these cell phones, all that Wi-Fi. Because I have also seen, you know, there have been studies showing that it changes your cells in your body, and then our animals are affected, our whales are, I mean, I'm a beekeeper, our honeybees, all the pollinators. Mm-hmm. So there is, there's a, I think there's a very steep learning curve, and uh, it's just so interesting to me that, we can go into these extraordinary mind states via these uh, psychoactives, and clearly, I think too, you know, clearly there are intelligences that are working with us, and I think passing a lot of this information through many, many, many of us, uh, so that we would put that into action, and and so we we have what we've got today, but I just. I just worry about the expense of our humanity, that love that you yeah. speak of, you know, and uh, how, how it can emerge from from this, you know, what can be a prison of messages and technology and stuff that we don't even realize we've already drowned in. Right. You know? Right. But, uh, you know, the, these are one of the things I would like to do 
is continue to keep these questions very alive in my own soul and with others, but also to have a certain kind of discussion. I think it would be very interesting for groups of people who are of like mind and, and want to, are thinking about this or doing things about it in one direction or another mm-hmm. to meet again in small very small, very intimate groups. Talk, have a whole discussion about, you know, we're going to talk about life on the screen. Mm-hmm. We're going to have the discussion we, we've been having. Technology, no technology. We'll right, see right. And then do medicine. Right. And I do. Look at it. Okay. <laughs> Brilliant. And discuss or not discuss or whatever you feel like doing mm-hmm. while you're in that state. And then go on your nice glide path down out and then have the discussion again. Mm-hmm. In other words, how does this look at baseline? How does this look in an altered state? What have we learned from whoever we've been communicating with? Now let's bring it back and talk about it together again. Mm -hmm. And move the process forward a little bit, even if it's only becoming more and more aware by focusing attention as individuals on these things and then seeing what comes out of it. I don't think there's any silver bullet. Mm -mm. I don't think there's one answer except... Mm -hmm. Except when you say something like, yeah, I mean, it's true, love is the answer. There's, you know, Terrence McKenna said it on his deathbed mm-hmm. before, you know, after not spending an awful lot of time talking about such things in his life and, or, you know, in his podcast or whatever. Mm-hmm. And how do we get back to that? Well, the medicine also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The medicine. I mean, Let's talk about these huge problems using MDMA. What does it look like when we when we approach it from a completely open, loving space? What do we actually do with the actual real world of signals flowing through us, you know, constantly? What I mean, we've got gamma rays coming from the stars, for heaven's sakes. We've got everything running through our planet and all. It's always been, we're just creating a whole lot more noise and a whole lot more electricity. You know, of course, the solar flares will outdo us all. And, you know, it, it, it's like, that's what I think. I think it's just conversations right now. And it's in deep, deep and intense and meaningful as we can come up with. And then communicating these ideas, using all this social media and all this technology to get some of these ideas out. And they are getting out. I mean, it's quite amazing. You know, we've got we've got a movement going now. We've got states, you know, moving from medical marijuana to full legalization and trying to define that. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is this actually going to mean? How is it going to play out in terms of the government and regulation and growing and selling and buying and, you know, mm-hmm. all this stuff? And then you've got the federal government mounting campaigns at the same time for the evils of marijuana. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever the, the, you know, the powerful alcohol and tobacco and other recreational, you know, drugs. We don't want people to stop taking opioids, for heaven's mm-hmm. sakes, you know, mm-hmm. you know and cool off on marijuana, we want them addicted to opiates. So, you know, there's a lot of very powerful interests, uh, lo- interests and lobbies, mm-hmm. which you cannot deny because it's a commercial world and, and these amazing things are happening in it. But that's a big contradiction. Well, that's got to work its way through the body politic and who knows how it's going to come out because it's, it's on a, you know, it's, it, it is on a collision course mm-hmm. uh, with 
anything that's connected to federal policy can be no marijuana, but it's legal in my state, and what am I going to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Can a teacher, is a teacher allowed, can a teacher have marijuana in their system? What if they, you know, that's what they're using for to handle the anxiety created by, you know, um, the fact that there was a school shooting, you know, <laughs> there's increased number, you know, how do you, how do you, there's a million examples we could make. But that, that one, you know, that's just, it's working its way through. And I think that, that the big, the big watershed will be descheduling marijuana, you know, from being, what, schedule one, from being no, no use whatsoever to anybody and the most illegal category you can have it in at the federal level, you know, to downgrade it, you know, uh, in, in, in scheduling. At which point that that's going to open the door to the psychedelic medicines and the work I think MAPS is doing, you know, so successfully, mm-hmm. and being able to treat uh, PTSD and veterans and all the things we could use these medicines for, very very creatively. Mm-hmm. But but it's got to work its way through, and and the big blocks are, you can just think of it as the Keystone Pipeline. You know, right now it's it, you know it's it's routed right through the Sioux Reservation, you know, the, as, if, as if we hadn't done enough to the Sioux Indians, you know, and they are not happy about that. Yeah, I don't know. There, you know, there's a part of me, Diana, that just, <laughs> I just want to call a halt to everything, the whole thing, the whole, like everything. It's, it, in other words, it's happening, the technology, uh, all of this so quickly, so 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 fast that it's it's really it's it's imposing itself on nature it's imposing itself on a great many of us who are kind of i know everyone loves their technology but anyway whatever well, it's being aware being it's it's raising awareness it's like there's one level of awareness where you learn how to use the device and then you just get sucked into it and use it and there's another level of awareness where you you say what is this what, how am I? How am I relating to this? Mm-hmm. What is it doing for me? Mm-hmm. What you know? What do I feel like when I can't find my phone? What's you know? And yeah. Really examining the relationship, and that that brings the awareness of all the effects, the good ones, the not so good ones. Well, I talk to more people. This is very good for me. I'm an introverted person. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I can easily go off totally alone and be completely happy for long periods of time and 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 these devices actually enable me by just being there to you know people can reach me in a way that i might not reach out for them and then i reach back and then you know and that's good for me up up to a certain level yes i love that personal thing for Mm -hmm. me because of my own psychological nature yeah works for me yes no question, no question. I mean, that's that's the upside of this technology. Yeah. It's just fabulous. It brings people together. Is, I have to empt- I have to unsubscribe from, you know, once a week from from my millions of of new spammy stuff in my email. You know, just the old thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and I think we do really need to discuss this electromagnetic. Pollution, the Wi-Fi, all of that. What is it doing to our cells? What is it doing to our, you know, our children, our beautiful nature, our pollinators, um, migrating birds, 
the tiniest little salamander, you know, like that has to be dealt with as well. Like if they could invent a cell phone that's not going to maybe possibly, you know, fry out my left side of my head, that would be, you know what I mean? Like why can't we invent technology that's safe? So that's another piece. And so maybe, you know, we need some of those guys to do a few, a few mushrooms, feed them a few mushrooms or MDMA or whatever. And we could invite them to the party, you know, exactly. Like say, look, you guys fine or whatever these aliens are. That's fine. You can bring your technology here. That's all right. But we're earthlings. We're humans. And we've got some beautiful, scenery around us and we want this to be safe you know that's my main my main deal with this and also you know not be imposed and not uh yeah and and not well whatever anyway we this is a long very um intense discussion i think because there's a lot we could speak to yeah that would make a very interesting group discussion also because there's so many technology people involved in psychedelics. Well, especially mm-hmm. I'm, I have the California view, and I'm yep. right in the center, you know, ground zero for technological innovation, yeah, at least are. in this country. I mean, it's happening all over the world. I'm not demeaning anybody else's technological innovation, but there's an awful lot happening, mm-hmm. and there's an awful lot of whippersnappers running around, you know, uh, bringing these things about without thinking about them a lot, but also sometimes taking drugs and going to festivals, you know? So you have this, you know, this culture uh, melding of the of, of technology and, and psychedelics that is, is pretty interesting. Yeah. And I think that, that hopefully there's lots of those wonderful technological geeky people, of which I count myself one, <laughs> Who are li- you know? We'll listen to this and say, yeah, "I think I'll think about that next problem while I'm." Uh, oh, hi, Kitty. <laughs> while I'm, uh, you know, while I'm um, a little bit elevated. Yes. You know? Yes, I would encourage that. <laughs> yes, I would encourage that as well. Absolutely, and then we have. Oh well, then of course we get the plant medicines. Their opinion <laughs> on this kind of thing, or, or their input. We allow them their input. Right. So, so anyhow, so we'll form a consultancy. <laughs> All right. Well, give me a call, Diane. I want to be included on that. I'd be very, uh, very interested. <laughs> well, listen. We should. Uh, we'll return. Let's have another discussion because this has just yeah, been. This is so much fun. I, I had no idea it was going to be this much fun. Yeah. Because <laughs> the idea of being interviewed is always kind of a little daunting and and stiffening, you know, to my to my psyche. But but. You framed it as a conversation, and that just loosened everything up. So, Oh, yes, I much prefer that. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Well done. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Diana, so very much. Yeah, and we will uh, speak again. All right, sweetie. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I just realized what an advantage I have in doing these podcasts, because now I get to add my own comments to the end of their conversation. And in particular, I want to pick up on what they were saying about technology. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm kind of ganging up with Diana on Shona's concern about the rapid rise of technology in our lives. 
First of all, I share Shona's concerns about Wi-Fi signals, but several years ago I decided that I'd only bother myself with issues that I can have some control over. Unfortunately, Wi-Fi isn't one of them anymore because even when I turn off the Wi-Fi here in our own house, there are still Wi-Fi signals from our neighbors. And uh, four of the six that I can see right now have at least three bars. So that's a potential or possible problem that somebody else is going to have to deal with. The simple fact of the matter is that it's most likely now too late to stop the increase in those signals. And someday I'll have to tell you my story about the early days of Wi-Fi. <laughs> you might be surprised at how and why the money for research and development of Wi-Fi became available. But I'll have to leave that little story for another day. What I do want to talk about now, however, is the age of high technology that we've entered. I'll start with my old Kindle, my electric book. When I first began using it, I actually did miss the feeling of holding a printed book in my hand, but now after using it for several years, it's my favorite way to read. First of all, uh, now that I'm getting old, the Kindle allows me to read much later in the day simply because as my eyes get more tired, I can just increase the size of the font. But more than that, I now have close to 600 books on that little machine, and I can not only do a word search through every book, I can also search across all 600 books at once. In fact, that's how I accidentally learned that not only the Harvard philosopher William James was a fan of psychedelics, I also discovered that uh, several other early Americans of great prominence also wrote about their experience with these substances. On top of that, I have a habit of highlighting when I come across something in a book that I may want to refer back to one day. With the Kindle, all of those highlights are stored by book in a file that, well, it essentially becomes a crib notes version of the book. So I can review a book that I read several years ago without having to leaf through the entire book to find my highlights. Now moving on to my tablet, well, that is simply a piece of equipment that has moved far beyond technology and into the realm of magic. And here's what truly amazes me about these tablet devices. Almost everybody simply takes them for granted. Now back when I was still working in the corporate world where our task was to build out the internet, we'd often talk about a day in the future, most likely uh, after we were dead and gone, but... But a day would come, we believed, when people would take the Internet for granted in much the same way that we take electricity for granted. We only think about it when it isn't working. Well, I think that we've reached that day already. I know you're tired of hearing this, but back in the old days, <laughs> back when I was a boy, our wildest dreams concerning technology ended with visions of one day having one of those science fiction two-way wrist radios that we saw in the Dick Tracy comics in the Sunday paper. Now, today I have this tablet, a thin little piece of glass, uh, slightly smaller than a standard piece of writing paper. But this little piece of glass is a window a window into the world of human activity. I can watch any of more than 100,000 movies or some of the 100 plus hours of video that are uploaded to YouTube each and every minute of the day. Or I can visit one of the more than 1 billion websites or read almost any book in the Library of Congress or look at works of art in the Louvre or have a video chat with a friend who lives thousands of miles from me. All of this comes through that little glass window into the world that I can hold in my hands. It's magic, I tell you. Magic with a capital M. Now, is this a good thing or a bad thing? 
Perhaps it's a little of both, but let's not forget the fact that there is simply no turning back from this. Barring a global ecological catastrophe of some sort, which is certainly possible, of course, uh, but barring something like that, uh, that returns us involuntarily to naked apes living off the land, well, I think that our technology is not only here to stay, we probably haven't seen anything yet. Should our great-great-great-grandchildren ever think of us back here in time, they'll most likely laugh at our so-called high-tech, the way that uh, we now think about how primitive our ancestors were when they didn't even have indoor plumbing. And then there's the question of technology and nature, or technology versus nature. First of all, uh, exactly what do we mean when we use the word nature? Some people confine the word to living systems, but aren't rocks and dirt and clouds a part of nature? That's up to you, but they are to me. And what about us humans? Aren't we part of nature too? And if so, can we separate our humanity from our technology? Our clothing is created by technology, as are the fillings in our teeth. So, do we have to become naked apes with toothaches before we're truly a part of nature? Or are humans and the technology that we have created now so intertwined as to essentially be inseparable? Now, let me throw out one more thing for you to think about. It's a vision that I have of the Internet. So, what is the Internet? Well, on a really elemental level, it's an interconnection on a global scale of some really powerful and complex machines. And what, you ask, are these powerful and complex machines? Are they computers, tablets, web phones, or the routers that interconnect the cables? Or are the machines that the Internet is connecting something even more powerful than our computers? If we were to try and model a single human brain at the molecular level in a computer, we would discover that at the present time there still is not enough computing power on the entire planet to do so. A single human brain is still the most complex thing that we know of. It's an organic machine in a way. And this is what's being connected by the Internet. The Internet isn't made up of computers, it's made up of people. We are the Internet. You and me and every one of the other three billion people who are already interconnected. Each of us are each nodes on Indra's net. And if you know that legend, then you know that each node on the net is said to reflect each and every other node. Now to keep this sci-fi kind of vibe flowing a little bit longer, consider this. Picture the world covered in a net with a little light at each point where the lines cross. Those points of light are us, the human internet. And while we are trying to properly reflect the other nodes, there's a lot of interference. Ideas are clashing all over the place. In fact, it's complete chaos. Can there be any hope? Well, from what I understand of Stuart Kaufman's work while he was at the Santa Fe Institute, there's more than hope. There's an actual certainty that over time these conflicting signals will eventually reach a state of resonance. And that's when our entire species will reach that frequency signature that Shona and Diana talked about at the beginning of their conversation. I do believe that Teilhard's wish for an awakening of the newosphere is more than a possibility. It's a probability. All we have to do is to stay connected and keep on having these conversations. The more of us, the better. Don't let somebody else answer the questions that we've been raising here. Join in the conversation yourself and get your friends involved as well. We're all in this together, you know. 
And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.